We've covered Lori Vallow's life. We've also covered Chad Daybell's life. Now, what happens when you mix the two together? Well, it ain't pretty. Listen up and strap in. This will be like riding a bull through a tornado, only somehow messier. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Killing Missing Hidden. I'm your mystical and enigmatic host, Brad. Don't I don't know what those words mean, but they sounded cool. If you're looking for true crime cases discussed by a former true criminal defense attorney, you've hit the jackpot. Or you found one that at least fits that criteria. I did a lot of criminal defense work. A lot of a lot of cases. So I kind of think I feel like I can talk about criminal justice type things without being a total moron. Uh, We are on our final episode of the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell saga. And I stress saga. This has been a heck of a journey. I hope you are comfortable. Maybe have a tasty beverage nearby. This episode is going to be a long one. It may be our longest yet. We'll see when we get done recording. Um, I am going to take a bit of a forced march approach here just to wrap up the series in three episodes as promised. And I'll give the warning that if I kind of sound different throughout the episodes, it's it's probably that I've been treated for exhaustion at some point and are on some good meds. I will uh, go ahead and warn you that if you hear screaming and yelling in the background, it's my kids because apparently the new season of Fortnite has begun. And from what I've heard through my walls, it's lit, which I think means good. But as an old man, I can't confirm that. All right. Now, uh, like I said in last week's episode on Chad, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, just stop. Okay. We're not doing this. There's no cutting the line. You go back and listen to the first two episodes. You kind of need to, because it's going to help you understand what's going on here, because this is a very crazy and confusing case. So follow the rules, stay within the path, and you'll understand this, okay? So let's do this, but pace yourself if you need to. So we finally, finally have Lori and Chad in the same room. In episode three, it took us this long to get to this point. They're just now meeting. They're at a preparing a people conference entitled Bringing to Life Hidden Things Through Personal Revelations. This was a two-day event held in October of 2018 in St. George, Utah. It featured 15 speakers, including none other than our boy here, Chad, who had decided to leave his family at home for his conference. Hmm, wonder why. And in the audience, we have our featured girl, Lori, who likewise is all alone. Now, Chad gave his talk on Friday night, and it was described by those in attendance as very fiery. After speaking, he went off to kind of this small booth or table near the side of the stage where he began, you know, signing autographs and talking to attendees and all that. Now, Lori naturally was one of the first in line and was just totally fangirling out. 
Chad, meanwhile, sees, you know, a pretty blonde woman who was gushing over his books, and he was instantly smitten. They begin to open up about the religious experiences they had shared with others, and I guess kind of became lost in each other's eyes. And, you know, as a reminder, both are married at this point. Chad's with Tammy, Lori has Charles. But for the rest of this conference, these two were just inseparable. Chad disclosed that he believed Lori had been his wife in seven previous lives, and she was a translated being who God had picked to help change the world. Typical Chad talk, right? Of course, if you remember, none of this is news to Lori. It just confirms what her spirit guides had been telling her. But Chad threw a little extra cheese on top of these nachos and insisted he could help Lori unleash spiritual gifts that were locked away deep inside of herself. Chad soon realized his wife was now holding him back. Lori, that was the sort of woman, you know, previously he thought he could never obtain, yet now she was his most devoted acolyte, and he began imagining the magic he and Lori can make together. I think he meant that spiritually and not just in the bedroom, but um, I, I don't want to read into the mind of a madman. Now, don't forget, too, that Lori had been confiding in friends that she thought her husband had been holding her back spiritually, too. So both of these crazy trains are kind of on the same track. And this is a time that, at least from Lori's perspective, everything came into immediate focus. She understand why she had been through so much in her life. She had to endure these hardships so she could be strong enough for Chad. In her mind. At Lori's request, Chad used his magical owl pendant, you remember that? To determine who had been the light and dark spirits in Lori's life. Now, this wasn't like the parlor trick version. Well, it probably was, but Chad didn't play this off as the parlor trick version like he'd done with others. Like, he spent some time working on this. He didn't just do it right then and there. He like went home after the conference and produced this full report for her. Now, from what I could tell, this little scale that Chad uses runs from 4.3D, which is the darkest of the dark spirits, to 4.3L, which are basically the angels walking on Earth. Here are some of the more interesting findings Chad made. Lori, of course, you know, 4.3L spirit, top of the chain right there. Colby, her oldest child, but, you know, who's moved on with his wife and all that. He's a 3L spirit, but Chad warned that his wife was a 3D spirit. Alex, her brother, was a 2L spirit. Joe Ryan, her child rapist husband, you remember that saga? Yeah, he was a uh, 4.3D spirit. But Chad also noted that he had been locked away by good spirits upon his death. I don't, I don't know what that means. It was presented in a positive light, so I guess it's good. Um, now, interestingly, Chad said that Charles, Lori's current husband, was a 3L spirit. So a pretty good guy, according to Chad. JJ, Lori's adoptive son, was a 4.2L spirit. So again, 
super good kid right there. And then Chad said that Tylee, Lori's only daughter, was a 4.1 D spirit. So she was approaching, you know, satanic levels of evil, according to Chad and his magical owl pendant. Now, no reasoning was provided with these findings. This is just what Chad saw through his fun little owl necklace. Now, I have to note how many of these findings jive with Lori's personal beliefs, but the determination that Lori's own daughter was a massively dark spirit was surprising. And, you know, her husband, like I noted, being a good spirit, kind of crazy because that seems to create a pretty serious obstacle in Lori and Chad's relationship. If Chad had chalked him up as a dark spirit, then it would be a lot easier, I think, to justify Lori leaving him. But he's painted Charles as a good guy here. Now, if you'll remember Rick Ross, our cult expert from the last episode, he felt this listing of light and dark spirits was just another tool in Chad's arsenal to brainwash Lori. He used the term thought reform. But honestly, did Lori really need any reforming? I mean, she was already willing to lick Chad's shoes, if he asked, I think, at this point. Based on this, you know, very scientific and thorough report, Lori decided that JJ, who again, remember, had special needs, no longer needed to take his medication. She stopped fulfilling his prescriptions. Needless to say, this had an adverse effect on the young man's life, and his behavior became much, much worse, and he was truly kind of a nightmare to control because he wasn't getting the help he needed. Going back to the end of the conference, Lori and Chad swapped phone numbers and planned to meet up again when he spoke in Mesa, Arizona in a few weeks. On the drive home... Lori was clearly obsessed with Chad and couldn't stop talking to her friend Melanie about how attractive Chad was at the spiritual level and how incredible it was that they had been married seven times before. There's no indication Lori found him physically attractive. Um, and, you know, he's, he's... I don't think he's ever been in the running for people's sexiest man alive. So her, you know making sure to say that he's a beautiful spirit. <laughs> uh, I th you know, I I'm reading into that a little bit just for my fun, but there may be something to it. So Melanie and Lori get home, right? And when Lori gets home, she decides it'd be smartest to buy a burner phone to contact Chad. And she calls Chad and tells him the same thing. So they are speaking to each other on burner phones so they can keep their relationship a complete secret from their spouses. That's always a sign of healthy decision-making, right? Lori also used her phone to send, um, let's call it provocative videos to Chad. And coincidentally, it was around this time that Chad realized his marriage to Tammy just wasn't working anymore. Yes, they had been married for 30 years, but she was, you know, nagging him to get a real job to pay the bills. I mean, who can blame the guy for wanting to leave, right? I mean, what guy is expected to support his family? I bet she got mad when he kissed other women, too. I mean, she sounds like a nightmare, right? Chad and Lori 
I'm, I'm joking there in case you didn't pick up on it. Chad and Lori begin to refer to the dark spirits in their life as zombies who needed help to seek peace. And the only way they could get that peace was through the sweet release of death, which is mighty scary if you ask me. When Chad came down for that Mesa conference, Lori told him, look, just stay at my house. See, she had arranged for Charles and the kids to be out of town. That was also their first night of being intimate, I guess, officially starting an affair. I don't know at what point you draw the line, but when you got, you know, naughty bits out, that's probably a good place to start. So the next night, you know, after doing the deed, uh, Lori invited about 30 people from our PAP group back to her house as kind of an impromptu get-to-know-Chad event. And during this meeting, Chad made the declaration that he had lived over 30 previous lives. One of them, he served as Martin Luther, who you may, may remember from history class, you know, nailed all those demands on the church store. He's kind of famous for that. He, uh, Chad also claimed that Lori had experienced 21 lives. He identified various members in the group that had come as prophets and other key figures named in the Bible. So he was just stroking everybody's ego. The next day, Chad and Lori spent literally the entire day together. Chad explained more of his teachings to Lori and divulged that God had selected the two of them to find and protect the 144,000 people God needed for Jesus' return to earth. And obviously, of course, it should go without saying, Chad and Lori would be their king and queen. I don't know what part in the Bible Chad and Lori are mentioned as king and queen, but, you know, that's what Chad was told. And who are we to question him? So after this uh, romantic weekend together, Lori started giving Charles the cold shoulder. She was viewing him as an absolute obstacle to her ultimate spiritual happiness. And Charles became a little suspicious and started poking around and found videos of a uh, less than fully clothed Lori that had been emailed out to some guy named Chad. Meanwhile, Chad allegedly constructed a special portal into Lori's spiritual oasis room so the two could meet every night. Um, hmm, that's all I know to say. So during these portal get-togethers, the pair decided the first part of their mission together was to rid the world of zombies. And they would often compare notes on how many zombies had died each week in different areas of the world and what their movements were. All through this special magical portal. Yeah. Um, you know, in case I hadn't stressed this enough, Lori, totally infatuated by Chad. When her friend Melanie saw how deep their love was for each other, she suggested that, you know, it may be time for them to divorce their spouses. But Lori said that was not allowed. However, Lori indicated that she and Chad had snuck into an LDS temple and secretly sealed themselves together for all time. This is um, 
from what I understand, again, I'm I'm not a member of the faith and I'm doing my best to understand it and be fair to it in the light of all the craziness that Chad and Lori are kicking up in its name. But apparently the sealing ceremony, yeah, that's um that's kind of completely against the LDS teachings, I think, when you've got two people who are married to others sealing themselves. And I, I think it comes really close to the line of being uh, blasphemous. Regardless, I think, you know, the leadership in the LDS would say this was super not cool. In mid-December, mid and again, we're in 2018, Chad visited with author Julie Rowe, who we've mentioned several times, and agreed to perform some energy work on her. Remember, Chad's developing all these fantastically magical and psychic gifts. But um, things didn't go well uh, during the session, and Julie ended up accusing Chad of attempting to sexually assault her. But she wasn't willing to go to the police with this. He, she just said, you know, you got to go. Now, Chad apparently called her and made several cheerful apologies, but Julie refused to speak to Chad again. Meanwhile, Lori and Chad's relationship just continued to heat up. They continued focusing on how to rid the world of zombies and started developing special rituals and prayers to do this very thing. But these efforts would be a little short-lived. Now, Chad soon identified a particularly powerful demon named, this very menacing sounding name, Nick Schneider. This was a name we haven't heard, or have we? Remember this name just for a bit, Nick Schneider. Hold on to that. Lori continues to go deeper and deeper into Chad's version of the LDS faith. She begins recruiting her family members to join her as part of the 144,000 army. She insisted everybody she knew reads Chad's books. Alex, you know, her brother, bought in immediately and deeply, as we would expect, of course. Meanwhile, Lori was proclaiming that she was in the process of becoming an immortal being who no longer needed to eat or go potty. If you tried to shoot her, she claimed the bullet would merely pass through her body, causing no damage. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't have any sources for this, but I bet she didn't test this out before proclaiming it to be true. Come January 29th of 2019, Lori began putting in motion a plan to get Charles out of her life. Now remember, okay, remember... Lori is a ruthless, ruthless woman and was just unbelievably cruel to her third husband, Joe, while they were divorcing and after the divorce. So none of what I'm about to explain should shock you, but yet it still will because it's I, I, how you can do this to someone that you lived with and loved for so long. I don't know. So Charles, you know, had to bounce around a lot for his business, his very lucrative business that gave Lori the life of leisure she enjoyed. When he left on his next business trip, like as soon as his butt was in an airplane and it was taken off, Lori went to the bank and basically took $35,000 from his business account. 
This left Charles with $7 to his business's name. Clearly, he wouldn't be able to make payroll with this. When Charles landed in Houston, Lori called him to let him know, I've taken your money, and if you interfere with my holy mission in any way, she would murder him. Not with the gun, but with her special powers. Because she was a god now. Charles was, you know, let's say slightly stunned and tried calling Lori back to continue their conversation. She refused to answer, refused to answer, refused to answer, and finally got annoyed with his phone calls, picked up the phone, and she would only refer to him as Nick Schneider because she was convinced this demon had killed Charles and was now using his body to bring evil to the world. Lori then blocked Charles' number. So that's how she's justifying getting out of this marriage when she, according to Chad, was married to a very good person. Lori then called her friend Melanie, and they visited the Phoenix airport where Lori stole Charles' truck out of airport parking, and she hid it at a friend's house. Lori then went inside the airport and canceled Charles' ticket home. Then she called a locksmith and had all the locks to the house that Charles had bought changed. Lori then takes all of Chad's clothes or Charles' clothing, his business records, his computers, anything that was purely his or related to his business, and tried to hide them in the pantry. She apparently made like a false wall of canned goods or something like that. She then moved out of the house with the kids and into a hotel. So Charles is stuck away from home with $7 to his name no ticket back, and a whole mess beginning in his life at home. When Charles was finally able to get in touch with Lori by using a friend's cell phone, she coldly explained what she had done and how he better not come home. Charles, though, was mostly concerned about the kids. You know, he he loses the house fine. He loses his clothes fine. But if you'll remember, he was really into the kids, as particularly J.J., because of his special needs, and he really went above and beyond to try to take care of J.J. Well, you know, in response to his concern about the kids, Lori said, you can have J.J., I'm done with him. I don't know what that means, but uh, mothers don't say that. And yet here we have Lori, a goddess, claiming that she didn't need her own son. Fortunately, Charles had friends who were able to help him, and he was able to get home. And as soon as he arrived home, he went straight to a psychiatric clinic. He filled out paperwork to have Lori committed for evaluation on an emergency basis. Now, while Charles did this, Lori called him and said, look, I'm dropping JJ off at school tomorrow, but I ain't picking him up. You need to find a way to get him. Well, Charles ain't dumb, and he decides, you know, this is a good opportunity for him to start figuring out what's going on. So he kind of hides in the woods near the school and waits for Lori to pull up and take J.J. into school. Apparently at the school J.J. was attending, 
parents had to kind of escort their kids in and out. So while she's inside taking JJ to class, Charles runs over, steals her purse, steals her phone, and then runs back into the woods. And he's doing this not to be petty or vicious, but he's trying to learn where his family is. He's trying to figure out what is going on with Lori. So he finds in her purse the key to a local hotel. And then he called the local police, asking them to meet him at the hotel and explain the situation. So, you know, the officers show up and they know what's going on. And Charles is there with them and they just waited. But after a spell, they learned that they were doing this all for naught because Lori had already left the hotel. She had checked out. She was done with it. But Charles had made enough noise using Lori's cell phone that she went to the police station with Tylee and Melanie to file a complaint against him. And Lori managed to use her charm on the sergeant who took her statement, convincing him that Charles was not well. Now, while Lori's in this meeting with the sergeant, Charles and his attorney managed to get that emergency commitment order signed and issued by a judge. It required police to take Lori to a local psychiatric facility for evaluation and testing. Once they got the order, they called the local police, happened to call the station where Lori was, and explained that they had this order for Lori Vallow to be picked up immediately they were going to fax a copy and then bring an original by. Well, for whatever reason, the sergeant that was meeting with Lori actually alerted her as to what's going on. And he kind of, you know, was like, once he shows up with that order and the shift sergeant signs off on it, he would have no choice but to take her to that facility. So if you want to run, now's the time. Like, literally, he was like, if you're going to go, go now. He had no interest in it, you know, following through on that order. Good police work there. But Lori did the exact opposite. She agreed to go voluntarily. She left the police station, and before Charles could get there with the order, she went ahead and went to the facility to be evaluated. And she passed with flying colors. She was released that same day. She wasn't even held for 12 hours. The interviewing sergeant noted in his report, went out of his way to note in his report, in my opinion, that Lori appeared to be of sound mind in his opinion. In February 2019, Charles officially files for divorce. He sought custody of J.J., his attorney claimed that he had one of the most unusual stories that she had ever heard for wanting a divorce. You know, what with the godlike powers Lori claimed to possess and an army of angels at her disposal, who would ensure Charles' body would never be found if she chose to kill him. Now, the attorney said, look, Charles, you got to take Lori off your life insurance because that's just a great motive for you to be killed. So he did that. He went and he changed it. So Lori no longer was going to benefit from this million-dollar policy. If something happened to Charles, his sister stood as the only beneficiary. 
So while all of this drama is going on, Chad is back home telling everybody he knew that his wife's life was in danger because he kept having these visions of her dying, usually in a car accident, and he was very worried that she didn't have long left on this earth. So we've got Charles filing for divorce, right? And Lori being Lori, she's kind of in the know on these sorts of things. She hears about Charles's filing, and her response is to fly to Hawaii with Tylee in an effort to hide out. Do you remember from our first episode, she had a friend in Hawaii named April, and that's who she stayed with and basically told April the entire story with Lori's little slant to it um, and made her, you know, swear to secrecy that she wouldn't tell anybody she was there. In fairness, she did tell a lot more of the truth than you would think. Like she admitted how she stole Charles money and had hidden his truck and all that. And April kind of listened in horror at this because it sounded to her like Lori was trying to bait Charles into doing something stupid. And April was also kind of shocked at how very extreme Lori's beliefs had become. Lori told April how she had achieved this godlike status, you know, with the power to destroy the evil in the world. She told tales about her, her previous lives, several of which we hear from the first time have occurred on other planets. And she needed April by her side as one of that 144,000. Lori had brought with her a mismatched stack of notes and notebooks, papers, just, you know, just a mess of stuff. And she asked April to look over them and study them so she could learn how the world really looked, worked. Lori told her family she planned to start a new life in Hawaii as soon as her divorce from Charles was finalized. She tried to get a job at the same report, resort that April worked at, but it didn't happen. But this really didn't phase Lori because she had $80,000 at her disposal from Joe's death. And she would often make these snarky little comments like, oh, th let's thank Joe for this dinner. You know, whenever she would use that money to purchase something. Charles, meanwhile, was in pretty bad shape emotionally, particularly regarding how Lori would just abandon JJ, who was in safe in Charles' care. Every day that Lori was gone, Charles would text her a picture of JJ. His sister helped out by taking over Charles' finances and was shocked to see that Charles had effectively been supporting Lori's entire family. And then for some unknown reason, on March 1st, less than a month after filing for divorce, Charles told his attorney to dismiss the divorce action. He didn't want to go through with it. So Charles sends JJ to live with his parents while he prepared to move to Houston. And if you'll remember, they were the first ones that had any contact with JJ. They have a very strong relationship with him, and he loves talking to him. Charles, you know, as he was in, you know, trying to move to Houston, he confided in his friends how scared he was. Lori was a completely different person, and she seemed focused only on destroying him. Now, in fairness, 
Remember that when Lori was running her campaign to ruin Joe's life, Charles kind of took an active part in that. So he should have known what Lori was capable of. At the end of March, Lori returned to the mainland and walked back into Charles' life as if it was just another day, as if nothing crazy had been going on. Charles was so excited, he began telling everybody the good news. The old Lori was back. JJ came back from his grandparents' house, and he was so excited to see his mom again. They all moved back in together, and Lori assumed control of Charles's finances, as the Lord had instructed her, she said, to help fix all of Charles' problems. But of course, instead... Lori just continued to drain Charles dry, expecting that the problems he had would kind of fix themselves because Chad had promised her the world as they knew it would end in July of 2020. So just over a year to go. Kay tried to warn her brother as she still had access to all his accounts, but Charles just brushed off his sister's concerns. Now, Chad and Lori continued doing their thing and particularly continuing trying to recruit their 144,000. Oftentimes, this involved convincing a potential recruit that if their spouse wasn't on board, they needed to divorce their spouse. Because, and, you know, they would justify it by saying, look, clearly your spouse is not full of enough light he wouldn't qualify for the 144000 or she wouldn't qualify to join our little army. Once they were divorced, Chad and Lori would then encourage them to marry someone that had been handpicked as part of their 144000 They were also encouraged to move to Rexburg, Idaho, to be near Chad to make surviving the last days easier on the snow recruit. Lori began spending more time with Alex as well, as he had been excommunicated from the church based on his assault conviction and some other issues. Lori taught Alex all of Ted's, Chad's teachings, and boy, Alex just soaked him up like a sponge. He was just fully and willingly indoctrinated into the cult. He was particularly fascinated by the zombie aspect, and he received multiple lessons on them so he could understand how they were a threat to the world and how killing them was really the only hope of the zombies ever reaching paradise. She also made sure to remind Alex multiple times that someone she knew, a.k.a. Charles, was one of these zombies. Now, Lori began using her recruits to pray for Charles, which sounds nice, but they weren't praying like to save his soul or to get rid of the zombie, but they were praying, asking God to kill Charles. They would regularly meet just to wish death upon Charles. Personally, not the most Christian thing I've ever heard, but who am I to judge somebody else's faith other than the host of this podcast that's doing nothing but judging Lori and Chad's faith? Uh, Lori would often remind her followers that while the timing of Charles' death would ultimately be up to the Lord, this was only one battle in their war. And while they were doing this, they should not relent in their prayers. 
In June, Charles discovered Lori had created a fake email account in his name and told everybody that this was Charles' new email address. She had even used this email address to proposition Chad about writing a book. When Charles discovers this, he confronted Lori, who feigned having no knowledge of what he was talking about. Charles then angrily accused Lori of having an affair with Chad based on the videos he had found. Remember, Lori wasn't very tech-savvy. Both Lori and Chad knew that if Tammy learned of the affair, boy, it would just be a massive blow to their efforts. And, you know, because of the risk he was now posing to that, Charles had just unwittingly signed his own death warrant. Despite having previously declared that his the old Lori was back, Charles called his friends in July of 2019, asking them to come over for an intervention he was going to hold for Lori. He was hoping that the threat of being excommunicated from the LDS church would be enough to bring her back to her senses. Now, this was scheduled to occur the evening of July 10th, 2019, but of course, Lori learned of this event before it could occur. Now, Charles returned home that day from a business trip around uh, 7.35 a.m. And when he walked inside, guess who was there? Alex, with a handgun. Now, nobody knows precisely what happened in the house, but we know how it ended. Charles had two new holes in his torso, and he was no longer breathing. 911 was called by Alex. He claimed that he shot Charles in self-defense. Alex claimed that they got in an argument, and Charles was in such a rage that he came at him with a baseball bat. Alex even had a head wound where he said Charles struck him before he fired his weapon. Alex told the cops what he claimed happened, but his story wasn't finely crafted, shall we say. See, he claimed to be alone in the house, but when the officers were asking him questions, he said he got the bat from Tylee, who was kind of cowering in a corner trying to protect herself. So that indicated the fight really started while Lori was still at the house trying to take JJ to school. And so Alex kept adjusting the players in the scene to fit the facts as they were kind of being highlighted to him. So kind of the story we end up with is the argument starts while Lori and JJ and Ty Lee are all home. Ty Lee gets a bat because Charles is going so crazy. Charles sna snatches the bat away from Ty Lee and runs after Alex, takes a swing, hits him in the head. Alex runs away, goes to his room and grabs his pistol. Charles followed him, and that's when Alex shot him. It should be noted that Alex called Lori several times before calling 911. So even this story doesn't work. In fact, police deduced from his story and the objective facts they could put together that it appeared Alex waited 43 minutes to call 911 after his little tussle with Charles. Oh, and... um. 
not to be the guy who ruins everything here, but Charles never held that baseball bat. Uh, Alex inflicted the wounds on himself to help this self-defense story. He literally stood there in the empty house and hit himself in the back of the head with the, the bat just so he would have some evidence to claim self-defense. While all this is going down and the police are doing their investigation and everything, Lori shows up and she shows no concern for what has occurred. She didn't ask any questions about what happened. She answered all of the officers' questions, but in like this happy and almost flirty way. She claimed that Charles had been acting just insane recently and that on at least one occasion, Charles had shown up at Alex's house looking for Lori. Lori did everything she could to paint Charles as this jilted lover. And she did make the odd comment to the police that, you know, she didn't see why Charles was so upset. He had the freedom to travel for work while she was stuck at home dealing with a special needs kid. The detective who kind of took statements from Lori included in his notes that he found her to be very odd and he had a gut feeling that she had been plotting something because the whole story given by Alex and Lori just didn't add up in any way. I mean, Alex's story is horrible in my opinion because it's never consistent and then Lori's saying that Charles has gone to Alex's house, and Alex is saying he was living at the house with Charles. None of it added up. Now, the detectives drove Lori and Alex and Tylee from the house to the police station so they could kind of interview them in more depth. They really wanted to see what else the adults would say on the trip over there. And... You know, one detective's driving, the other one's in the passenger seat. Alex and Lori and Tylee's in the back. Well, during the trip, Lori's just all smiles, and she's just bragging on about Tylee getting her GED and would soon be attending BYU at Hawaii. The detectives, you know, they just kept looking at each other because they found the conversations to be really strange. And they were becoming more concerned that they were not getting the whole story, and maybe not even a part of the real story. Eventually, you know, their time with the police ends, and they're taken back home. When they were free of the police, the first phone call Lori makes is to Chad. She was happy to report that police did not suspect anything, in her opinion. And Lori decided the day that Charles is shot, the day that he bleeds out in their living room, the day that police have been through everything, finding out what's happening, that she needs to throw a pool party. Yes, a pool party. Before Charles' blood could even dry, Lori was calling caterers and inviting people over to her house. The pool party happened that night and apparently was so loud that police were called by the neighbors to break it up. After the party was broken up and people kind of trickled home, then Lori decided to call her oldest son, Colby, to let him know Charles had died that morning from a heart attack. Well, Colby 
was really upset by this and he felt like he needed to be with his family. So he raced to the house and was greeted by Tylee, who just kind of, you know, grabbed him, hugged him, and just cried on Colby's shoulder. Colby eventually made his way through the house and he found Lori sitting by the pool on her phone at night. When he approached, she kind of abruptly ended her phone call. And Colby sat down and asked his mom, you know, tell me the truth. What happened here? So she did. But, you know, Lori gave the self-defense version. But Lori also noted that Alex had acted a little irrational when he shot Charles. And Alex was really kind of stressed out by this whole event. So he decided to fly down to Columbia for a short vacation. And if you'll recall, he takes very unique vacations to Columbia. So we know what Alex was doing. Lori waited several days before she called Charles' grown sons to let them know that he was dead. But she refused to give any specifics or answer any of their questions. And they were just incessantly texting and calling her, but Lori just ignored them. Or when she did answer, she would give these really cryptic answers that were clearly an attempt to save them off. Finally, Charles' boys alerted their aunt, a.k.a. Charles' sister, to let her know of the news. Because she had not been told by Lori. She refused to believe what they were saying, but when she just did a quick Google search, she found newspaper articles about her brother's death. Some that described it as his murder. She immediately remembered what Charles had said to her weeks before. If something happens to me, it was Alex and Lori. The medical examiner's report indicated the bullet's trajectory did not match Alex's story. Shocking, right? At least one of the bullets struck Charles after he was down on the ground. So the medical examiner decided to leave the cause of death as open, which as we've learned is very important because that will allow police to continue investigating the matter. Lori ended up cremating Charles as quick as she could, but never held like a proper burial or memorial for him. All she did, the nicest thing she did in all this, is when she got his ashes, she mailed them to his parents in Louisiana. Four days after Charles' death, probably about the time she was telling Charles' kids about what was going on, Lori tried to collect the benefits on his life insurance policy, and this is when she first learned that Charles had changed the policy. And she was outraged when she learned that Kay was the only one who collected that $1 million payout. Lori furiously called Chad and informed him about the setback. Both were planning on using this million-dollar payout to help fund their uh, little crusade for the end of days. So, meanwhile, Charles's family is just preparing for the worst. They knew, or they believed, knew is probably a better word, that it was just a matter of time before Lori would get ticked off and send Alex after them. 
But instead, Lori made plans to move to Rexburg to be closer to Chad. And Chad began making plans for the other dark spirits that stood between him and Lori being together. He went so far as to make a little graph chart thing that he labeled the death percentage estimates for JJ and Tammy as to when they would die. Chad was sad, maybe, to report that Tammy had become possessed by a dark spirit known as Viola. Boy, that's some incredible timing, isn't it? Lori officially withdrew JJ from school, claiming that Charles had committed suicide and they just couldn't deal with school right now. And this is probably one of my least favorite parts of the story. Lori then tried to get rid of Bailey. JJ's beloved service dog. Oh, I hate that so much. I mean, this was JJ's best friend, arguably. And Lori's just callously giving away this pup. When they were together, because, well, which happened a lot because Chad would make frequent trips down to Arizona now that there was nobody else standing in the way down there. Lori and Chad would often hold these, you know, old school salons where they would invite people over to discuss the end of days. What else? But also, you know, the movement and changes in the zombie population. I never really got a grasp for how they really tracked the zombie population. But, you know, they had all these magic portals and spirit guides they could talk to. So I probably am not smart enough or wise enough to understand. Lori's friend Melanie would usually attend these salons, but she thought the discussions were crazy. But she was scared to say anything because she felt like if she ever disagreed with Chad or Lori, she would get labeled a zombie. Which... She probably would have. She was probably smart in doing that. Now, one night she did ask Lori kind of, you know, why are you having to face so many zombies? And Lori fired right back. It's because she was an exalted one and Satan just hated her. Chad focused a lot of attention on Alex during these visits. He wanted to make sure he was fully, you know, on board. And he convinced Alex that he was one of the 144,000 and that his role handed down from God was to protect Lori from harm. He said Alex was essential to God's plan. And of course, Alex, who's already bought in, just now is like, I, I guess I would say a zealot. That's the best word that comes to mind. I mean, he had just become a no questions asked sort of dude. And that made him to be the no questions asked hitman. In August of 2019, Lori re-enrolled JJ in the same school she had withdrawn him from at the end of the previous school year. The teachers and staff were excited to have JJ back because they had seen how much he had grown and opened up during his time at the school. But when he returned, he wasn't himself. Charles' parents, who regularly communicated with J.J., he had an iPad and they could make FaceTime calls. They really noticed a massive change in J.J.'s attitude, too. He was normally really excited to see them on the FaceTime calls, but during the last few months, he had grown kind of disinterested. The last phone call they had with him lasted 35 seconds, where basically he says, you know, 
hey, grandma, hey, grandpa, or whatever name he used for him. Um, I'm really busy. I got to go. And they were concerned something was wrong with them. So they asked Lori, you know, can we come visit JJ? And Lori was, oh, of course, that'd be wonderful. We'd love to have you. But every time specific dates were brought up, ah, you know, we got to go out of town that weekend or, ah, I wish we could, but this is going on. And so she would never commit to a firm date. At the end of August, Lori and Alex both signed leases on neighboring condos back in Rexburg. Lori and Ty Lee packed up the car and prepared for the 700-mile drive. On August 30th, they drove to where Colby worked and asked him to come out to the parking lot. Uh, as he did, Lori announced that she had taken a job somewhere cold but wouldn't be any more specific. And they were there to say goodbye, just like that. So Colby, you know, say, said goodbye to JJ, who was really excited about the move. And he also said goodbye to Tylee, who was crying and was very upset about the whole situation. So when they finally arrive in Rexburg to officially live there, Lori's biggest concern was Tammy. Chad had been promising her, or predicting rather, that Tammy would die in a car accident, but it hadn't happened yet. Chad continued to assure Lori that, look, it's just a matter of time. This isn't an if it'll happen, it's a when it will happen. And we can't control the winds, you know that. So that kind of kept Lori at ease a little bit. And they would continue to see each other. Most of their kind of romantic rendezvous would occur at the nearby BYU-Idaho campus. Apparently, Tammy was not one to go to the campus, so Chad and Lori felt safe there. On September 8th, Lori, Alex, JJ, and Tylee took a trip down to Yellowstone National Park over in Montana. Lori took lots and lots of pictures of a smiling and laughing JJ and Tylee. Tylee, however, was never seen again after this trip. Lori explained to people who asked that Tylee had already left for BYU-Hawaii and was starting her studies there. I'm nothing if not a truthful podcast host, right? So... Here we go. Tylee was not in Hawaii. I know, that's shocking that we can't trust Lori. Um, Tylee was buried on Chad Daybell's property. As best police could later figure out, Alex was in Lori's house from about 2.42 a.m. to 3.37 a.m. Then Alex traveled to Chad's home where he spent next to the next morning. Now, don't forget what was Chad's job that he held on to for three decades in bits and pieces. He was a grave digger. And he happened to put that skill to use. He maintained a small pet cemetery on his land for his family's dead animals, any neighborhood kids who wanted to come visit. When... When police would later search Chad's property, they would find Tylee's body. She had been completely dismembered and burned. Her body was not laid to rest. It was tossed into a hole. 
her body parts had apparently been carried over to the hole in a green bucket and it was just tossed in the hole. It the body parts were so hot when they were tossed into the hole that the green bucket actually melted around Tylee's head. But within a week, Chad was back on the podcasting circuit, preaching about the end of days and all the love that Jesus has for everybody in the world. Very, very, very disgusting. On September 14th, so less than a week after Tylee is never seen again, Lori, Alex, and JJ went to the Yellowstone Bear World which is apparently sort of an amusement park not far from Rexburg. Again, during this trip, Lori took lots and lots and lots of pictures of JJ running, riding the rides, just having word, uh, just having fun. But soon afterwards, Chad gave the order. JJ was invested with a dark spirit. He was a zombie now and he had to die. Lori began building a story for what would happen to JJ. She said she was planning on letting him spend some time with his grandparents in Louisiana. She hired a nanny before then to start watching JJ because who would bear such an expense for a child they planned on killing, right? That was her thinking here. Lori also began kind of complaining more and more about how JJ's behavior was just getting out of control. And to her close friends, her very, very closest friends, Lori began confessing that she feared JJ was becoming a zombie. Now, this was an assessment that no one else agreed with, but they were also too scared to publicly disagree with Lori. On September 21st, Lori recorded a podcast episode in her kitchen with Melanie and others. Alex was babysitting JJ that night. During the recording, which lasted from 9 until midnight, everybody who was participating saw Alex return with JJ, who was asleep in his arms, and he took the young boy upstairs to bed. And that was the last time J.J. was ever seen. Police have, refu have, have released very few details on how J.J. died, which makes me fear it was apparently gruesome. What we do know is that J.J., when he was found, had his wrists, arms, ankles, mouth, and kind of from his chin to his head, wrapped in duct tape. And when it came to his ankles and his wrists, they were so duct tape, like apparently his, at his wrists, it looked like he was almost wearing boxing gloves with how thick Alex had put the tape on. At 9.55 the next morning, police later on learn that Alex is again at Chad's house. Alex was only there for 17 minutes, which kind of suggested the grave had been pre-dug, right? 
when police did eventually find JJ's body, it was buried under three sheets of plywood with three heavy stones all top, all of which were part of the the grave. So you dig down, you'd hit these hip th- three heavy stones. You'd remove those, you dig down, you find the plywood. You remove the plywood, dig down, then you find JJ's body. Lori continued to try to hide the disappearance of her daughter by keeping her phone. And she would respond to texts on her phone. But of course, you know, she couldn't match teenager speak very well. And lots of Tylee's friends were confused why Tylee refused to call and had kind of changed the way she texted. Like she was known for overusing emojis in her texts. Colby was actually one of these people who said, "This, this just doesn't sound like my sister. On Chad's end, things weren't going too much better. Tammy had started to suspect Chad was having an affair. And Chad had all along said, we cannot allow this to happen, right? Chad also was feeling pressure from other sources because his talks and his books just kept becoming more and more out there. And eventually, the leadership of the Church of Latter-day Saints officially excommunicated him because of how bizarre his beliefs were getting. That meant Chad could no longer enter temples, he could not partake in the sacrament, and he absolutely could not indicate he was preaching on behalf of the church. Apparently, the final straw to the leadership came when Chad declared himself to be a prophet. And I could see why that would, you know, furrow some brows. So we've got Tylee and JJ out of the picture in Lori's mind. And that meant Lori and Chad could continue working on Chad's plan. Now, because Lori couldn't collect Charles' life insurance, Chad decided to help make up some of the loss by increasing Tammy's life insurance. Lori's niece, Melanie, did the same thing to her now estranged husband, which was good because he apparently was the first man on Alex's new hit list. Now, on October 1st, Lori rented a storage facility under the name Lori Ryan and began storing all of Tylee's and JJ's things there. Not suspicious at all, right? Alex also used a storage facility, and there's a video camera like right over their stinking facility. So all of this is recorded. And when Alex uses it, it shows that he removes the rear seat from his Jeep Wrangler and the spare tire. The Jeep Wrangler, I say it's Alex's, it wasn't Charles' name. He had owned it. Alex was just borrowing it. After removing the back seat and the spare tire, Alex went on the road. He drove down from Rexburg to Gilbert, Arizona, with one of his rifles and a silencer. After this 13-hour drive, Alex parked the Jeep close to Melanie's house. 
and he sat in the back of the Jeep where the seat and the spare tire would have been and kind of created like this makeshift sniper's post. Around nine o'clock that morning, Melanie's husband returned from his morning workout routine, but he noticed the Jeep. And he also noticed that there appeared to be something that looked like a gun barrel sticking out of the Jeep. Now, of course, Melanie's husband sees this and kind of pauses and is trying to piece together what's going on. And before he could put it all together, his windshield exploded. The bullet that Alex had fired missed its target by inches and struck the door frame behind the husband's head instead. Well, with once the windshield explodes, Melanie's husband just floors it. And Alex gave chase in the Jeep, but Melanie's husband was able to outmaneuver him, and he was able to lose Alex and managed to get to a place he felt was safe, and he called to report the shooting. He then went back home, gathered up his children, and left the state. He went into hiding with some relatives in Utah. The following week, Tammy, Chad's wife, came home from buying groceries when she was surprised by a man wearing a ski mask who jumped out from behind their bushes. He pulled out a gun and fired multiple shots at her, and every stinking one of them missed. Now, because of the silencer, Tammy thought the dude was a local teenager who was just playing this kind of cruel prank with paintball guns. And she even went on Facebook in their neighborhood group to warn her neighbors that, hey, there's a kid out here with a paintball gun. Be careful. So as far as this designated hand of God assassin, Alex sure did suck at his job, right? Two misses. One of them wasn't even scared by the attack. I mean, what a putz. But shockingly, on October 19th, Tammy dies from natural causes. She was feeling bad at night. She went to bed and she just didn't wake up. The coroner determined that she had died of natural causes. Uh, I believe it was blood clots had gotten into her lungs. And, you know, Chad, of course, did not request an autopsy. But everybody in the community was stunned because they had known Tammy to have been in such good health. And boy, Chad, Chad played the part of a grieving husband slash widower perfectly. I mean, he was just so upset, so despondent, couldn't be comforted. Tammy was laid to rest three days later back in Springfield in Utah, where she was from, where she didn't want to leave. And she was buried at the same cemetery where she and Chad fell in love. A few days later, Chad received Tammy's life insurance check. It's 444000 And not long afterwards, he and Lori jetted off to Hawaii to get married. Soon, all the members of this budding cult were in the process of 
doing their divorcing thing, getting their life in order, and moving up towards Rexburg. Melanie's husband, you know, who had been shot at, he uh, hired a private investigator. And he wanted the investigator not only to look into his shooting, but also to figure out what the deal was with Melanie's new friends, i.e. the cult. The PI found Melanie packing up a U-Haul on Halloween night, which is a very strange time to be packing to move. The PI, because it was dark, he was able to sneak up and stuck a GPS unit underneath the moving, the underneath the moving van. He also noted that Melanie was tossing a lot of the kids' belongings in the front yard, like clothing and toys and things like that. And before she left, she constructed this crude sign and stuck it in front of all the stuff saying free. The PI seems like a good guy. He went through it and kind of grabbed what looked like the best of the clothing and the best of the toys and then boxed it up and mailed it back to his client. A few days later, Melanie went on Facebook and made this rambling post asking for any information about the location of her husband and her kids claiming that her husband had just bolted out in the night, taking her children away from her. And she claimed the police refused to help her, but she was convinced that her children were in danger. Now we bought forward to November 5th, which is only two weeks after Tammy's death. Lori and Chad have the wedding of their dreams. Beachside in Hawaii. Now, this wasn't a big event. In fact, no friends or family were invited. It was just Chad, Lori, the minister, and a photographer. The entire affair lasted for 45 minutes. Both the minister and photographer found the couple to be a bit strange, as if their heads were kind of up in the clouds the entire time. Oddly, when it was time to recite their vows, Chad and Lori refused to do it in front of the minister or the photographer. And they insisted that it be a private moment, so they stepped away so Chad and Lori could say whatever they needed to say. Now, that same day, that very same day, Charles' sister Kay just happened to stumble on her brother's, or I guess her late brother's, Gmail account and opened it up and learned that dozens upon dozens of orders had been made to her brother's Amazon account after he died, and all the shipments were being sent to Rexburg. And she knew that's where Lori was living. Kay decided to go on an investigation binge through all of Charles' accounts just to see what else had been going on with her brother's finances after his death. On November 25th, Charles' parents contacted the Retzberg police and asked for a welfare check on their son, J.J. They explained to the police that they regularly spoke to him several times a week, but it had now been months since they last spoke to him, and his mother wouldn't provide any information about J.J. Plus, they let him know he's autistic, he's got other special needs, and they were just very worried. Now, understand... 
remember, Lori promised that they could come visit JJ. And from that time forward, she constantly refused to commit to a date and then tried to just shut them out of their lives altogether. And there's email after email after email after text message after text message where they're begging Lori, just please let us talk to JJ. Tell us if he's okay. What's going on with him? We just need some news. Like I mentioned in the last two episodes, Mr. Glatt's book, The Doomsday Mother, it's got all that detail in there if you want to read it. Now, police, you know, heard, took this call and said, yeah, we'll, we'll do a welfare check. So they visit what they think is Lori's house to check on JJ, but when they arrived, Lori wasn't there. Alex was there, and Chad just happened to be there. The police explained that they were there to check on JJ as family members were concerned for his well-being since he hadn't been heard from in some time. Alex, even though he answered the door, he just kind of froze and looked to Chad for direction. And so Chad kind of sauntered up and said, no, everything's fine. JJ's spending time with his grandparents in Louisiana. The police kind of looked at Chad and said, well, we don't know that that's possible. And Chad says, what are you talking about? And they said, well, it was the grandparents that contacted us. And so Chad kind of goes into a mini panic. Alex, Alex goes into a mini panic. They ask Alex for Lori's cell phone number. Alex says he doesn't have it. They then ask if they could search the residence. And Alex claimed the officers were at his home. Lori lived next door. So the police walked over and knocked on that door, but received no response because Lori truly was out. As they did so, Chad tried to make a quick and quiet getaway, but officers saw him pulling around and were able to get in front of his car and stop him before he was able to get too far. They asked Chad for Lori's cell phone number, and Chad said he didn't have it. Then the officer said, well, aren't you the same Chad Daybell who just got married to Lori a few weeks ago in Hawaii? Chad said he was, and then gave him Lori's cell phone number. At this point, police decide, you know what? This all seems a little odd. And they decided, let's, let's keep an eye on Chad and Lori and Alex. And after doing so for a spell, they managed to get a search warrant for Lori's house. When they returned with their search warrant, Lori didn't give them a chance to speak. She instantly went into this mode of explaining that, look, this is all a big misunderstanding, okay? JJ didn't go to his grandparents' house. JJ was visiting her friend, Melanie Gibbs, down in Arizona, Lori also tried to paint away Charles' parents, saying they were really monstrous, and they really would stop at nothing to take J.J. away from her. And so, you know, she would never send J.J. down to visit them. They're, they just couldn't be trusted. And the police acted very sympathetic towards Lori, but they didn't believe her. They did it just because the more they encouraged her, the more she went on rambling and ranting 
and trying to paint this picture of a woman who is being harassed by former in-laws, whose now deceased husband had plotted to kill her, and who is now facing all this questioning by police. Now, police tried to call Melanie Gibbs before they left, but she didn't answer, and Lori had an explanation for that. J.J. had been wanting to see Frozen 2, and she thought today was the day they were going to the movies to watch it. As soon as the police left, Lori called Melanie, got in touch with her, and said, Look, if the police call, J.J.'s with you. You went and saw Frozen 2 today. Lori claimed Charles' parents had lied to police and they were trying to kidnap J.J. from her. Melanie initially agreed, and police did call her that night, and she confirmed she had J.J. in her custody. But then local law enforcement arrived at her door and asked to see J.J., and she broke down in tears. She admitted she had lied at Lori's request, and she hadn't seen J.J. since September. Well, with everything going on, Chad and Lori were in full-on panic mode. The police were asking too many questions about J.J., and they didn't have enough answers to give them. They decided the best thing they could do would be to return to Hawaii in hopes that the police kind of got lazy or this fell through the cracks or some miracle caused them not to want to pursue this case further. Now, police were, meanwhile, in the process of doing the opposite. They were trying to get search warrants, again for Lori's house, but also for Alex's, as well as niece Melanie's house, with approval to search for forensic evidence. They also got a search warrant for the storage building rented in Lori's name. Just to interject, the fact that the search warrant allowed for forensic evidence is important because when you get a search warrant to look for, say, a missing child, you as a police officer are only allowed to search places where a child could be, meaning you can't open up kitchen drawers, you can't open up dresser drawers, any place that a child wouldn't fit into, you can't search. But now that they have a search warrant for forensic evidence, well, that could be anywhere. So they kind of have carte blanche to go through anything and everything in Lori's house and Alex's house and the storage building and niece Melanie's house. Around the same time, police showed up at Colby's home. And of course, Colby was shocked to see the cops and he was like, I will answer any questions you have. And during the meeting, he tried to call his mom to get some information to pass on to police officers about what was going on. And she wouldn't really answer his questions. She just deflected and essentially said, don't worry about anything. Don't get involved in this. I've got it under control. You just focus on your own life. Now, Lori and Chad, not only were they trying to escape, you know, the murders that seemed to follow in their wake, they were still trying to run this cult. So after fleeing to Hawaii... They had to return to the mainland because they had some cult weddings to oversee, including Alex's marriage to one of the cult followers. This was all going on in Las Vegas, too, because, you know, we're classy. When Alex got married, he took the kind of unusual step of 
not asking his new bride to change her last name to his. He took her last name. And the weddings were treated like business transactions. No frills, very low cost. The chapel owner had to talk Lori and Chad into buying simple things that you would expect at a wedding, like flowers for the bride to hold and pictures of the newlywed couples. Niece Melanie was there too uh, to get married. She married a dude named Ian Pawalski. And Ian didn't really understand the cult and wasn't familiar with many of their teachings. But still, he was vetted and approved by Chad and felt like he was a good enough soul to be part of their 144,000. So after the marriage, their first night together, Melanie and Ian did what most normal young couples do. They talk about cult doctrine. Um, Ian was just very confused by all this, and he didn't really take it seriously for a while. He would later tell reporters that it sounded like some messed up game of Dungeons and Dragons. But once Melanie got to talking about zombies and how they had to be killed so their souls could be laid to rest, that struck him. That bothered him. And he took what she was saying a lot more seriously. Melanie also admitted to Ian that Alex had tried to kill her ex-husband because he was a zombie person and had become possessed by a dark spirit. Ian now, Ian was, uh, Ian was pretty upset. You know, he, he didn't really understand what he had just married into. So he kind of covertly calls his ex-wife and asks her to track down Melanie's ex-husband and see if she could confirm if what Melanie was saying was true. Ian and his ex-wife even went to the police after making sure the four children they had together wouldn't be caught in any of the impending cult-related crossfire. After the weddings, Chad and Lori went back to Hawaii as they were trying to establish a new life there. They opened up checking accounts. They found a house to rent. Lori still had Tylee's phone to give the impression she was alive and well. She also, you know, continued to cash JJ's social security checks because they didn't bother to tell anybody that JJ was missing. Chad used $150,000 of Tammy's life insurance to kind of open up their primary bank account that would let the pair live as, you know, the kings and queens that they were. Police executed their search warrants, and since only Melanie was still in Idaho, she was the only one there to greet officers. They took her computer, her iPad, and lots of other electronics and other belongings in hope that it would help locate JJ. Melanie instantly told her new husband, Ian, those officers are clearly possessed by dark spirits. They're disciples of Cain. They need to be dealt with. Again, Ian sneaking around Melanie, feeding all this information to his ex-wife so she could act upon it. But when they hear this, both Ian and his ex started becoming scared. And if Melanie, they just, you know, in their opinion, if Melanie 
or Lori or Chad or Alex ever said in or his ex were a zombie or under some sort of influence of dark spirits, their lives would be forfeit. So as law enforcement was digging more and more into the lives of cult members, this task force was created between law enforcement agencies in Idaho, Texas, Arizona, and California. And it was under the direction of the FBI out of Phoenix. And when they started comparing notes, they were blown away. Like they plotted Lori and Chad's path through life and just found death upon death upon death in their way. They started reading Chad's books and listening to Chad's podcasts and Lori's podcasts just to try to get a better feel for what sort of people they were dealing with. Ian and his ex both contacted the member of this joint task force, told them what they had been told or what Ian had been told, you know, that they were scared and concerned. And Ian agreed to kind of become a spy for the FBI. They wanted to do anything they could to help bring down this cult. So an FBI agent gave Ian the special thumb drive device. And they wanted Ian to kind of copy everything off of any computer that Melanie had access to that seemed relevant. But they also wanted Ian to record every conversation he had with Melanie on this device. And so for a solid two weeks, he did this. He was also in his free time when Melanie wasn't around, kind of summarizing a lot of the cult's teachings and preparing a breakdown of the inner circle for the FBI so they could study it and understand it. And this report was the first time that anyone outside of the cult learned that Chad believed in magic and wizards. And we're not talking like a pagan Wiccan sort of thing. We are literally talking like a Harry Potter sort of thing. Like you get a magic wand and you say magic words and you can make miracles happen, according to Chad's teachings. While this is going on, friend Melanie down in Arizona really starts to realize how dumb it was to lie to the police about JJ and is instantly having regrets. And so in kind of a, CYA move. She tries to record Lori or Chad admitting to some of the bad decisions they've made. So she kind of puts her phone on speaker and is recording it. And the conversation lasts a little over 20 minutes and gets pretty tense pretty quick. Uh, Melanie was asking about JJ. Chad and Lori were very defensive and said they couldn't tell her where JJ was for his own safety. Eventually, the couple started accusing Melanie of being under some sort of dark influences. Chad kind of warned her that they were working to protect her. And, you know, Melanie fires back saying, look, JJ going missing does not sound like a plan God would come up with. Lori then fired back saying she regretted ever sharing Chad's golden knowledge with her. And... Melanie called Lori the Antichrist, and that kind of ended their friendship. But Melanie took a copy of this phone call to the police, and they were intrigued. They found some statements in there that were a little odd, 
particularly when out of nowhere, Chad just spontaneously claims that he had nothing to do with Tammy's death. Well, they use that to go to the courts and get an order giving them law enforcement permission to conduct an autopsy on Tammy. This occurred on December 11th. On December 12th, Alex kind of started acting weird, even for Alex. He claimed he wasn't feeling well, and he even called one of his friends to give him a blessing over the phone. The friend was so concerned with how Alex sounded that he called Alex's new wife and said, look, you got to get home and check on Alex. Something's really wrong. On the drive home, Alex's new wife called her son and said, hey, Alex is sick. Will you go check on him? The son, I think he was an adult son, um, went upstairs and found Alex on the floor of the bathroom, unconscious, covered in his own filth and gasping for breath. Uh, the son kind of froze, not knowing what to do. Alex's wife arrived moments later, and you know her son called 911 while she tried to do CPR on Alex, but it was too late. Alex, it was later learned, died at his own hand. He had secretly driven into Mexico on December 7th to buy some prescription drugs which she intentionally overdosed on on December 12th. But before this was learned, the medical examiner determined that Alex died of natural causes. He had blood clots in his lungs. On Friday, December 20th, again, still in 2019, the police went public. They announced that both JJ and Tylee were missing and were considered to be in extreme danger. Police also told the press the kids' disappearances appeared to be linked to Tammy's death, which they were now calling suspicious after the autopsy. Here's some fun coincidences, okay? She died. The coroner said she had blood clots in her lungs. Alex died. The medical examiner said Alex had blood clots in his lungs. Both of them, when they were found, died with a pinkish, pinkish foam coming out of their mouths. There's no source that states this, but to me, Alex poisoned Tammy with the same prescription drugs he used to kill himself. That's the only thing that makes sense. Regardless, as you might expect, Lori and Chad just freak the F out when they saw the headlines. <laughs> they immediately hired attorneys in Idaho who then immediately began their own media campaign talking about what good people Chad and Lori were. Chad and Lori continued attending services at their local temple in Hawaii, telling anyone who would listen that they were just victims of bad press. They were actually trying to protect their children from evil forces the Preparing a People group didn't really feel comfortable with the situation and issued a statement that same day, basically distancing themselves from Lori and Chad, and they erased all evidence that they had ever been buddies with them, including deleting all the podcast episodes 
they had ever appeared on and all of Chad's talks that had been recorded. On December 30th, 10 days later, police issue another press release thanking the community and the media for their help in bringing so much attention to the situation. The police noted publicly that they were, quote, astonished at Lori's lack of cooperation and concern about her children, and they believed Lori knew where the children were but was refusing to share that information. By January 16th, police decided to stop fooling around, and they had, I don't know what it's called in Idaho, the Department of uh, Child Protective Services, DHR, whoever job it is to protect children in Idaho, went to them and asked them to go to the court. And they went into the appropriate court and received an order requiring Lori to appear in court no later than five days after she was served with the order and to produce both of her children to the court. The police, because Lori was over in Hawaii, they couldn't serve the order on Lori until January 25th, which meant she basically had until the end of January to show up in court with JJ and Tylee. Not a good situation for her with what we know. The next day, they, the task force convinced Hawaiian law enforcement to get a search warrant for Lori and Chad's house and vehicles. When they searched, they found JJ's iPad, JJ's school registration, JJ's birth certificates, JJ's medications, which had not been filled since January of the previous year, Tylee's birth certificate, and Tylee's ATM card, but nothing else relating to the children. And by that, I mean... There's no clothing for the kids. There's no, none of JJ's toys. There's no recent photos of the family. It just so happened that the East Idaho News sent a reporter and cameraman to Hawaii to try to interview Lori, which she refused. But the reporter followed her as long as he could. And when the reporter said everybody was concerned for her missing children, Lori responded with a very flippant and very sarcastic, oh, that's great, which ended up being like her defining statement in so many people's minds. After this, the local Hawaiian police officially joined the FBI task force. When January 30th of 2020 came and went, Lori was not in court. She did not produce her children. The court found her to be in contempt and at the request of the state's attorneys issued an extradition order requiring Lori to return to Idaho and face the music. That night, in an effort to do some measure of damage control, Chad spoke with Christopher Parrott, who was the guy that ran that AVAL website to explain the situation and to defend himself and Lori. Parent went on his website, which is basically, you know, a giant message board, and posted that Chad would be totally vindicated 
And when this was all over, and he used a nice bold font to say all this, people would learn that this was nothing more than a nasty, nasty custody case gone too far. And people would be shocked at how many people had lied to make Chad look like a monster. On February 10th, Chad released a statement through Parrot, again saying he had to remain silent according to his attorney's directions until this mess was straightened out. So please understand that he could not be talking about this situation publicly. On February 20th of 2020, and at 2.20 p.m., lots of twos in there, right? Lori was finally arrested in Hawaii. She was charged with two felony counts of desertion of a child and a variety of other misdemeanor charges, plus that contempt charge. If she was found guilty of all these, she faced a maximum sentence of 14 years in prison. Chad, however, was not arrested. He was not ordered to produce any children. He thus did not violate any contempt order. So he was allowed to remain a free man. And in fact, he was allowed to call and speak with his wife almost daily. He continued to reassure that this was a spiritual test and to not forget that come July 22nd, the beginning of the end of the world would start. She only had to hang in there until July 22nd. Now, Lori was taken before the Hawaiian court on February 26th to contest the extradition order that Idaho had issued. And the massive $10 million bail that had been set on her cases to make sure she didn't flee. During the hearing, Lori's attorney argued passionately that the extradition order was due to be quashed, that her Idaho attorneys were working hard on doing just that, and that the bail was ridiculously high. The prosecution, meanwhile, argued there was no flaws in the extradition order. And they felt the bail was appropriate, but if it had to be released, it should not, under any circumstances, be reduced to below $5 million because Lori had a history of skipping town whenever police were looking for her. They were aware of all those contempt orders she had received during her divorce from Joe, and they made sure the court was aware of that, too. At the end of the hearing, the judge agreed to reduce the bail to $5 million, but offered Lori no other relief. And when the judge said, is there anything else? Lori's attorney stood and said, well, judge, with that, we would like the court to know that we are no longer challenging the extradition order, and Lori would like to return to Idaho as quickly as possible to defend herself. Now, while in jail there in Hawaii, Lori was a bit of a celebrity. She was also given what she perceived to be very special treatment by the guards. She got her own cell. Whenever she walked around, she had to wear a bulletproof vest. She had free access to the phones and was allowed to enter kind of the general population pod to watch television whenever she wanted. And when she did so, there would always be a guard close by to her. Now, of course, the real reason she was giving all of these uh, 
privileges was because they wanted to make sure she made it to court alive. Other female in- inmates do not like child murderers. A mother who is willing to kill her child is given no love by other female inmates. When Lori did finally make it to court, she somehow appeared in makeup. She was wearing red lipstick, and she had uh, some uh, mascara. That's that's what girls call it, right? Uh, Apparently, she had managed to make this herself. The lipstick was made from Red Jolly Ranchers. The eyeliner and mascara was made from pencil lead shavings. That was for her first court appearance in the Idaho courts. I'm sorry, I didn't make that clear. Um, And after this hearing, the Idaho court agreed to reduce her bail to $1 million. And before the hearing was over, Lori told the court that she was firing two of her three attorneys. The one she kept, she kept because she believed he was her son in a previous life. So she trusted him. Meanwhile, Chad had his own attorney and was beginning to scheme against Lori, secretly telling his attorney and very close friends that Lori knew where JJ and Tylee were, but refused to share that with him. And he could probably get more information from her if it would benefit him in some way. Police, by this point, with the arrest and everything, are just digging hardcore into Lori and Chad's background just deeper and deeper and deeper. And in doing so, decide that, you know what, Charles' death, we need to look into that a little bit more. And police in Arizona did. And they came to the conclusion that we think Lori needs to be charged either with murder or conspiracy to murder Charles. In Idaho, the coroner, you know, had been asked to do that autopsy of Tammy. And much like Alabama, Idaho's forensic testing is backlogged by months. And so it took a while for all the lab tests and other information regarding Tammy's death to be returned to the coroner. And when she read everything, she became very suspicious. And she went to the local prosecutors and said, I think y'all need to look at this. I think Tammy may have been murdered. But for some reason, the local prosecutors did not seem interested. But she was undeterred, and the coroner went to the Idaho Attorney General's office, who reviewed her findings and agreed to prosecute Chad for Tammy's death. In May, Lori's mom, Janice Cox, for whatever reason, decides it's a good idea to give an interview to the local CBS affiliate. She tells them her daughter was not a murderer. She had always been a wonderful mother and was more beautiful on the inside than on the outside. When the interviewer asked about Alex, she laughed and Janice said, look, Alex loved the children. Remember, he went to jail protecting them because he thought that Lori's ex-husband was a pedophile. In June... After having spent months and months and months digging through all the computer forensic evidence, one of the FBI agents found Chad's text to Tammy 
back on September 9th, 2019, which was the day that Tylee was buried, we think. And the text to Tammy basically said that he was burning some limbs that were cluttering up the backyard. And while he was doing so, a raccoon had appeared and kind of danced across the top of their fence. But fortunately, he had time to go get his rifle. He was able to shoot the raccoon, and he burned the body of the raccoon too, and then buried it in the pet cemetery. Well, this was, for whatever reason, this was the first time that the FBI realized that Chad had maintained a pet cemetery on his property. And the powers that be in the FBI decided that they needed to start putting together a plan on how to best search for bodies on Chad's property. Now, one massive obstacle in this investigation that police did not have a solution for was Alex. They believed he committed the murders of the children, but he was now dead. They didn't have the evidence and were concerned they never would have enough evidence to bring murder charges against Chad or Lori for J.J. and Tylee's suspected deaths. Now, as the FBI began to formulate their plan, prosecutors were secretly negotiating with Lori's attorney about a plea deal, and they had kind of reached an understanding. But Lori told Chad that the, she had been offered a plea deal and she thought it was a good one. And Chad immediately said, no, 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 no. You cannot do that. You absolutely cannot plead guilty. That would be against the great plan. You just need to hold on until the end of July. That's when things will improve. On June 9th, the FBI gets another search warrant, this one to search Chad's property for bodies. When they go to execute it, over 100 law enforcement officials were on the scene, and they brought with them at least five cadaver dogs. They found J.J. first around 11 a.m. He in his little shallow grave. Now, Chad had remained on the property in his vehicle. I don't know why, but he had stayed there while this was going on. At 11.03... Word had already gotten around to everybody on scene that a body had been found. And some of the police spectators saw Chad get out of his car. He was running his hands through his hair like he was very nervous or upset. And he called Lori to let her know that his property was being searched. Lori apparently sat in stunned silence. Chad told her to speak with her attorney and then said he had to take another call. After Chad hung up, he got in his car and tried to flee the scene. But again, didn't make it real far. Again, 100 officers right there. Um, and so he was caught and formally arrested at 11. 30-ish. At 1 p.m., Ty Lee's remains were found. Police then held a press conference at 3.30 announcing 
they had discovered human remains on Chad's property. Chad was initially charged with two counts of felony concealment and destruction of evidence. On July 1st, after several court hearings had been held, Chris Parrott released a statement on his AVAL website indicating he was ready to eat crow. He said he had been fooled by Chad and Lori and now vowed to do everything in his power to help bring a conclusion to this horrible, horrible case. Three weeks later, July 22nd, 2020, the promised day of the end of the world. Well, this won't shock you since we're sitting here talking about this case a few years later, but what Chad had predicted did not occur. There were no massive earthquakes, no nuclear weapons were fired. Rather, the self-anointed leaders of the 144,000 were each sitting in jail cells with virtually all of their followers abandoning them in anger. During preliminary hearings, the prosecution hammered home the point that neither Lori nor Chad ever reported J.J. or Ty Lee as missing. When the police tried to contact them about the missing kids, both Chad and Lori ignored the police's phone calls. As these hearings continued, the LDS church leaders issued a statement calling for all followers of the faith to avoid becoming involved in any case involving members of the church. Now, this was viewed as a huge deal because over a quarter of the residents of Idaho were members of the LDS faith. And Rettsburg, in particular, had a very high concentration of followers. This proclamation was questioned by many because it could have had the effect of tainting the jury pool. On May 25th, 2001... Big jump in time here, which just happened to be the day that J.J. should have turned nine. More charges were filed against both Lori and Chad, including murder charges for the death of J.J. and murder charges for the death of Tylee. The investigation and the prosecution had been significantly slowed during this time because of the COVID pandemic. A hearing was held, hearings were constantly being held in this case, in case you hadn't gotten that impression, but a, a special hearing was held on May 27th, two days later, regarding Lori's state of mind. And the court determined that Lori was not mentally fit to stand trial. Now, before you jump up and down, this doesn't mean that any charges were dismissed or the like. It meant she was remanded to the custody of a mental health facility until a psychologist determined that Lori understood the charges and the consequences of the situation. Her case was stayed, and there was an order entered that it would be reviewed every 180 days, basically to get an update from the mental health facility to see if it was appropriate to allow the prosecution to continue. Now, as of this recording, Lori remains unfit to stand trial. In January of this year, Lori's brother, Adam, said in an interview with 2020 
that Lori still isn't any closer to reality than she was when she started believing Chad's doomsday predictions. Regardless of her mental condition, Lori was formally indicted by the state of Arizona for conspiring in the death of Charles Vallow. On August 5th, 2021, Idaho announced that it intended to seek the death penalty in Chad's case based on the especially cruel and heinous nature of J.J. and Tylee's deaths. The following October, the trial court ruled that Chad's trial would be heard in Ada County, Idaho's most populous county, due to all the pretrial publicity. In December, the trial court ruled Lori's attorney could no longer represent her against the charges she faced because the previous attorney had worked with her co-defendant, Chad, in creating a defense, thus creating a potential conflict of interest, and because the court had concerns over his competency as an advocate. Wow. Like, the court came out and said, you cannot be this woman's attorney because I think you're too bad of a lawyer. That's what that meant. Now, Chad's kids continued to advocate on his behalf. They claimed that he was manipulated and framed by Lori. As of this recording, trials for both Chad and Lori have been tentatively set for January of 2023. Chad has asked the court to be tried separately from his wife, and we're still waiting for a ruling on that motion. End. We've reached the end. Holy mama. This episode was exhausting to record. Oh, heck, the, the entire miniseries was just a test of vocal endurance on my part. Okay, again, I just want to stress I'm not a member of the LDS faith. I'm very ignorant of certain aspects of it. If I said anything that was incorrect or could be interpreted as, you know, potentially disrespectful or offensive, it's because I'm ignorant. It's, it was not intentional. I have no desire to, you know, chastise anybody's religious beliefs, except maybe Lori's and Chad's. Um, you know, this is a story about Lori and Chad and their bizarre beliefs, as well as the gruesome deaths of JJ and Tylee. It is not about any church or any faith. I also feel like I need to remind everyone that Lori and Chad are still presumed to be not guilty of these crimes, right? That's one of the beauties of being in America. You are presumed to be not guilty until a court says otherwise. Now, this is the first time we've covered an ongoing case. Several of you have requested we cover such cases. I usually don't like to do this because I think it's hard to evaluate a case and really give any strong opinion until after the trial occurs and we have a verdict. But, you know, I try to make y'all happy, so here we are. I want to go into a lot of points on this case, but so much is self-explanatory to me. And I don't think we need a lot of legal analysis. 
But there are a few points I do want to touch on. You know, first, as I noted, COVID really slowed down the investigation and court proceedings in this case. I could not confirm if all of the medical examiner's tests have been completed, all of which were obviously significantly delayed by the pandemic. I do hope Idaho can compare Tammy's autopsy reports with Alex's. Again, both seem to die under similar circumstances that mimicked a natural death, but we know Alex died from an overdose on prescription drugs. Like I said, who's to say Tammy didn't either because their deaths were surprisingly similar. Uh, although I didn't mention it, um, it was kind of mentioned offhand by Tammy's children and by Alex's wife that shortly before both of them died, they said they weren't feeling good and they were suffering with a nosal cough but not a serious one. And then they get blood clots in their lungs. I do not see lawyer Chad walking away from this situation without serving significant jail time. I personally fully expect Chad to take a plea deal to avoid the death penalty, which means he'll probably get life without parole or just life. And a condition of that deal is almost certainly going to be that he has to testify against Lori. He could perhaps go to trial if he and Lori have their trial severed. And then he could spend the whole time trying to defend the case by claiming this was all Lori. They were her kids. She did everything regarding her kids. I didn't get involved in that. But when the bodies are buried on your property and when you're a former grave digger who almost certainly will be you know looked at as the person who dug the graves it doesn't look good for him really the only meaningful alternative i see for chad is suicide and i know that's horrible to say but he strikes me as the type of guy who could take the easy way out and that may be the easy way out for him as for Lori, she's going to be in a mental health facility for a spell. Um, you know, there's reports that every night she still dances and sings in her room. She's, she can certainly play up the crazy. I think this is a situation where the state would want the psychologist or psychiatrist to be 100%, you know, certain that she is fit to stand trial, that that decision is bulletproof because her attorneys or attorney can hire an expert to challenge her fitness for trial. And then we'd have a series of hearings between her hired expert and the state's hired expert about how fit Lori truly is. Now, again, again, People hear folks, you know, being found unfit to stand trial and think that some sort of get out of jail free card is not. It is not. I can't speak to Idaho, of course, but the state mental health facilities in Alabama are dreadful. I personally, I, I'm not exaggerating here. I, if I had the choice between going to a mental health facility or a prison, 100% would pick prison every time. 
because a mental health facility run by the state is basically a prison, but you're just locked in there with crazy people. You can have a 250 pound patient lose her mind and break your nose for no reason or stab you because you, she thinks you're full of demonic spiders. In jail, at least there's some degree of civilization and some basic rules. You can learn the rules. You can learn how to survive. Some people even thrive in jail. But in a mental health facility, it's like living in an Alice in Wonderland type scenario. So in my opinion, Lori will either die in the facility or regain her mental faculties and then be transferred back to jail to await her trial. And again, even if things go to crap in Idaho, these folks are facing charges in multiple jurisdictions. So it's going to be a while before the saga is over. Depending on how the initial Idaho trials go, we may even see the feds get involved and bring their own charges against them. Even if the death penalty was not on the table, I would expect Lori and Chad to spend a long, long time in jail. Though the state where they are serving their sentence may change over time based on what else they're convicted of. I, I really think that as we get into this and as we learn more, there will be additional charges that are brought against them. More bad deeds are going to be uncovered. Again, I am not taking shots at anyone's faith, but I do want to criticize the LDS leadership for issuing that statement that essentially tells its followers don't serve on the jury of either of these cases. You know, depending on where you live, imagine receiving a decree that no Catholics should participate in a certain trial, you know, or Baptists or Methodists or whatever, whatever is the predominant religion in your area. That would have an impact on how you selected a jury. And I don't understand the motive for the decree. It hurts the criminal justice system in Idaho because you're throwing out so many potential jurors. And I don't know why the LDS leadership cares. Chad was excommunicated. He is not a member of their faith anymore, officially. And I think Lori was like a hair's breadth away from being excommunicated herself. And, you know, personally, just from my experiences, and it's probably sad, I tend to think the worst of organizations. Like, I think the motives behind decisions are always selfish and self-serving. So I believe there's some ulterior motive behind the leadership's decision. I don't know if they're worried about Chad and Lori talking about doctrines that the public that are not made public or what the deal is. This was just a weird call. Finally, I'll note that I would not expect any more arrests to stem from this case unless there's a lot of evidence we haven't seen. Law enforcement will no doubt put pressure on anyone who did anything to help Chad or Lori and convince them to cooperate with the investigation lest they become targets of the investigation. Arguably, that's dirty pool, but that's just how it works. If you know something and you don't cooperate, we're going to make you the bad guy. I have no doubt there are parts of the story that some of you have questions about, 
If you do, please email me at info at kmhpodcast.com, info at kmhpodcast.com. I'll do my best to answer all the questions sent my way. And if we get a ton of questions, I'll do a fourth episode on this case. I'm fine with that. But I will say that I think this is the deepest we've ever gone on a case. Um, And, you know, of course, if you hate having a three-part episode like this, let me know. I try to make everybody happy. I know it's impossible, but I still strive for it. And I don't want to get in a habit of doing multi-part episodes if y'all dislike it. I know in general, y'all prefer longer episodes. But heck, this is what? Well over five hours worth of material, so we couldn't have done done that in one go. I couldn't have done that in one go. Let's just get to the palate cleanser, okay? For the second week in a row, we are not doing an Eli selection. Instead, we've got a listener-submitted joke. This comes from listener Marzana's daughter, who came up with this one all by herself and sent it to me in February. And I'm just now getting to it. So I apologize. Y'all are better people than me. But I hope it was worth the wait. Here we go. Why do dolphins only swim in salt water? Well, it's because pepper water makes them sneeze. Now, I have to say, this is as superb a palate cleanser as we've ever had. Marzana, tell your daughter, thank you so much for the joke. We really appreciate it. And I hope she gets a kick out of us using it. All right, it is time for me to go. It has been real, kids, but Daddy Brad needs his rest after this long recording and after this long weekend. My wife really put the screws to me this weekend, so I'm exhausted. But I hope to see you all again soon. We will probably not have an episode next week, probably take that week off. We've got spring break here in Alabama. I've just dug and dug and dug through this case. And I'm going to take a time out. So y'all be good. Stay beautiful. And this is Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden. The podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.